Parents, we work really hard to teach our children certain things. If you remember growing up at a home, remember your parents teaching you things. So even if you don't have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Parents have to teach their children how to say please and thank you. Have to teach them to look both ways before they cross the street. To um, not run in the house with scissors. Not to fight with your brother and sister. So there's lots of things that parents have to teach children because they aren't necessarily hardwired into them naturally. But there are some things that are hardwired into children and we don't have to teach them particular words. The signature word that you don't have to teach your children is the word mine. Someone in your orbit taught your kids that word. Surely it wasn't you, it was the neighbor kids or the cousins or someone in the Sunday school program at church. Some children, or some child at some point in time said the word mine and it clicked with your kid and they grabbed a hold of that. In fact, if you've been around toddlers, two-year-old, three-year-old, you know mine, mine, mine is sort of hardwired into their humanity. It's a, it's a part of the brokenness of our world. In fact, so much so that a particular person developed what he called the toddler creed. I need your help with this. When I point to you, I need you to say the word mine. Here's the toddler creed. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm doing something or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like mine, then it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you are playing with something and put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And finally, if it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> now, you know what the problem is with that? The problem is that that doesn't go away when you turn four or 40 or 80 because mine is part of the brokenness of our humanity. In fact, even if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you, you resonated with exactly what we all talked about because you know this, whether you're a Christian or not, you know that somewhere deep within the human heart, there is this penchant for mine. Today we're starting a, a four-week series called All In. And the idea is how do followers of Jesus take their passion for him and then make it practical? In other words, what does the Bible say about key subjects like stewardship, generosity, time, and money. And over the next four weeks, we're going to dial into some sort of a biblical theology of all of those topics. We have a study guide for those of you that are in small groups. I can't wait for you to be able to discuss this with some friends and just kind of probe into how do we really live this out, which by the way, if you're not a, in a small group, a little commercial, would love to have you get into one. There's room for you. Go over to our Next Steps area, have some folks over there identify where are some small groups that you could plug in. So we're taking a break from First Peter. Why are we doing this? Let me give you just a few reasons as to the heart behind this series. The first is that we're going to talk about some foundational biblical principles that 
not only relate to stewardship in general, but they apply to every single one of us in ways that you probably even don't realize. This series is not just about money. We're gonna talk about money, but it's not just about money, and it could be incredibly helpful at so many levels. Secondly, understanding and applying basic principles regarding stewardship can bring an incredible amount of blessing in your life. I, I'm doing this series not because of what I want from you, but what I want for you. Like there's joy that is a possibility because of thinking about these things. Third, there are some of you who, if you're honest, you're stuck in a really bad cycle. Whether it's related to your career, whether it's related to how you think about your gifts, how you think about your calendar, how you think about your money, anything that you own, there's some of you that are stuck, and I hope that this series will result in some really neat and helpful next steps that you would take. You may look back on this series and say, man, in 2017, I made some progress in my life. Praise God. Fourth, sometimes Christianity can seem rather theoretical or kind of ethereal. We hear things like igniting a passion to follow Jesus, and you're like, well, what does it mean to be a passionate follower of Jesus? Well, this particular series makes it incredibly practical means that following Jesus translates into your calendar. It translates to how you think about your house. It, it relates to what happens and what you feel when you get into a car accident and your beautiful Buick got rear-ended. The series relates to how you think about giving and purchases. So all of these things are in play and here's what I want you to do. I want you to try and make this commitment from the very beginning. Not just if God shows me something in this series, then I'm gonna to respond to it, but can I just take that, that good general sort of attitude when you come to a sermon series, but can I just push it a little bit further and say, would you maybe pray something like this? Lord, I've got a lot of things. I've got a lot of stuff. And I just wanna lay it all before you and whatever you wanna do with all the things that I think I own Lord, I'm here ready to respond to you. And with that sort of open-hearted perspective, I think the Lord may want to do some significant things, perhaps in ways that are even a bit surprising to you. This morning from Genesis 1 and 2, I want to identify four particular foundations of stewardship. From the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we have the very first instructions that God gives to people who live in the first place that God created, given to first people who bear his image. So this is really foundational. And as I've kind of walked through these chapters and thinking about this matter of stewardship, it's just a really good reminder that these concepts that we're gonna talk about are not just foundational to stewardship, they're, they're foundational to humanity, they're foundational to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You get these things right, and you start putting these things into practice, it sort of can be like spiritual muscle memory. Like you just start getting into the habit of, of being a good steward of the finances that God's entrusted to you. You get into the habit of being a generous giver, that when someone wants to borrow something of yours, that your bias is towards yes, absolutely, as opposed to no, that's mine. You start doing that, you start developing really good habits. Those habits can be um, not only really helpful, but they can be developed over time. You know, anything has those kind of habits built into it. If you're a basketball player, you know that at some point in time someone taught you how to, how to follow through and you develop the muscle memory. 
or um, when we did our first song, <laughs> some of you have no muscle memory how to clap on the offbeat, right? And, and I'm there with you. Like when at night I was like, I looking around, how do you, look at that, okay. Part of it's probably my ethnicity, right? Some of it's that, but there's also, I'm, I'm not a bluegrass guy and yet so good banjos are awesome. I just, that's not how I think, of, I can hardly even do it. So that, that muscle memory piece relates to music, it relates to athletics, it relates to business, it relates to academics, and it also relates to how you care for your soul. And if we can develop some of these habits, then, my goodness, there's some great fruit that might be able to develop. Here's the first. Number one, God is the creator of everything. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now we'll unpack this further in just a moment, but you need to know that this is the seventh time that this formula of and God said appears in the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1. This is, this and God said, is the basic wording of how the world came into being. God created it by speaking it into existence, and that is powerful. It's one thing to do something with your hands. I mean, that's significant. But to be able to speak it, can you imagine having that power? It'd be awesome, wouldn't it? You're laying in bed this morning, you're like, coffee. And boom, there it is. <laughs> awesome, right? Or I was traveling home late from a basketball game last night, and I was just like, oh, I just wish I could blink and be home. If you could be like, home, and whoop, there you are. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? The, the kind of power that God has, he speaks, and things become real. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one, he speaks and there's light. Day two, there's land and sea. On day three, he speaks and there's vegetation. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, there's fish in the sea and birds in the air. Day six, there was the creation of animals and mankind. And what happens in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, we see this foundational truth that's very simple and yet very profound. Namely, that the world as we know it, that the world as we see it and as we experience was created by God and is sustained by him. In fact, Genesis 1.31 presses it even further. Not only has God created everything, but he's created it good. Genesis 1.31 says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. So God looks at all that he's done and he pronounces over it this beautiful goodness. So there's something powerful about Genesis 1. There's something incredibly good about what God does. And the implications of this as it relates to stewardship are significant. The first is this, that friends, if God is the creator, then everything in life, everything, owes its existence, its life, to God. In other words, if he's the creator, then fundamentally he owns it all. We just happen to be the stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Secondly, since nothing exists apart from his decree or his sustaining power, that means that everything, even your breathing at this moment, the beating of your heart, the very life that you have, the, the future for your career, the, the the whole workings of the universe are dependent upon his authority, dependent upon his power. It also means that God 
as creator, has the right to establish boundaries, and we'll, we'll see that. He establishes boundaries in the garden that he says to Adam and Eve, you're to live in this garden, you're to work it and to keep it, but there's, there's a tree that you're not to eat from. As well that God, as the creator, has the right to establish boundaries as to what is right and what is wrong. And it also means that God has embedded in creation, even after the presence of sin, this, this goodness that says something significant about him. So this is where the Bible starts. It starts with God as the creator and the owner of everything. And you need to know that even in the New Testament, after sin enters the world, just a chapter or two later, when, when Christ then comes in the New Testament, we find that, that the reality of God as redeemer doesn't negate his ownership, it only heightens it. Because God in the New Testament is not only the creator, but he's also the one who saves. That the cross then becomes the means by which people are rescued from their sins. So God not only creates people, but he also buys their freedom. Which is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says that Jesus made us alive together. And why the Apostle Paul then takes that concept of being made alive and he applies it to our bodies and in particular applies it to our sexuality when he says, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. So if you're a follower of Jesus, that means then that you were really created twice. You were created once physically, but you were created secondly spiritually and that you belong to your creator, not only by virtue of the creation, in Genesis chapter one, but you also belong to your creator by virtue of his redemptive power. When you understand this, it has sweeping implications. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 sort of, sort of reaches the summit in, in Romans 11 verse 36 when he says this, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever, amen. That's what it means, that's all in right there. C.S. Lewis, in his excellent little book called Mere Christianity, says this, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. So essentially, when you use the things that God has put in the earth, you are using things that belong to him. The effect is, to be very frank, you're not an owner of anything. In the same way that maybe your children, parents give you gifts, but when they give you gifts, they're buying those gifts with your money. So it's a gift, but it isn't. Don't tell your kids this, right? Hey, thanks, but it's really not a gift, I bought that. And so the, whether it's some craft that they made, you bought, the, you bought the fabric, you bought the paper, you bought the glue, you bought the glitter. Whether it's some piece of little wood project that they made out in the garage, you bought that wood, that's your hammer, that's your nails, like all those things. So when your kids give you gifts, essentially they're giving you your stuff back in a different, and at the same time, even though it's a different form, there's still something beautiful and glorious about it, but the fact of the matter is, they don't own it. And from a biblical perspective, Neither do you. Everything about our life is given to us by one who is our creator. He sustains our life. And you know, sometimes it's easy to forget how much we are in need of his grace, how much our lives almost kind of hang in the balance. Remember the last time you had the flu? 
and you laid in bed and couldn't believe how unhealthy you felt, some of you thought, some of you men thought, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. Call the mortician, it's over, right? I think it was about a year and a half ago or so, I, I preached probably the worst sermon ever at College Park Church. Some of you remember it. In fact, it was so bad, I actually stopped and said, okay, this isn't going well, let's pray. And a number of you nodded your head and said, yes, let's pray. And so we, we started over. What you don't know, and what I didn't know at the time, is a few days earlier, I was downstairs, and I was bench pressing, yeah, like 270, something like that, and I was down there, and I went to, I went to re-rack it on the, on the um, little bar things, and uh, racked the right side, thought I had the left, but didn't check, and let go. And the whole weight, all 370 pounds, came crashing <laughs> on my head, and oh, it hurt so bad, I kind of saw stars and everything else, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm okay. And then I noticed something rather odd, like when I was watching TV, couldn't focus very well. Truth be told, when I was in the basement playing Call of Duty, I got a little dizzy. Yes, I play Call of Duty every once in a while. Um, and uh, couldn't, got a little dizzy. And then I gave the sermon, and I came home and I said to my wife, I don't, like, my, like, I can't put words together. Like, it's so weird. And then I realized, you know what? Probably that knock on the head created some kind of mild concussion that I had no idea that I had. And it just was a reminder that just like that, little neurons in my brain that I don't even know what they're called aren't working, and as a result, I can barely put words together, can't put a sermon together. And my life hangs on this little thread of God's sustaining grace. And every once in a while we get a good picture of that, but most of the time that we live, we act like our brain's always gonna work, our heart's always gonna beat, I'm never gonna get the flu, I'm just gonna feel just fine, I'm gonna be able to go to my job today and do exactly what I'm supposed to do. And when that gets out of order, sometimes some of us get really upset and angry, and it's a reminder that we really aren't as in control of our lives as what we think. Underneath Genesis chapter one is this principle that God is our creator. Stewardship begins by us confessing, you're God, and I'm not. For some of you, that's like the very first step that you need to take this morning. It's just, we'll talk about generosity next week and what it means to not curl your fingers around some stuff, but this morning, you need to just start coming to the realization that part of the stranglehold that stuff has in your life is because you want to be God. And in your little sandbox of life, you try and create stuff that's yours because of what it says about you. Secondly, this text tells us that we bear the image of God. Verse 26 says, let us make man in our own image. Now this is so important that it's repeated in verse 27. We don't have time to unpack fully what this means to be made in the image of God. Let me just explain it very briefly. It means that human beings are different than the rest of the created order. So if you have a wonderful dog at home, or you had a weird cat, or um, a, a chirpy bird, or a really fast gerbil, or a really cool hermit crab, whatever you have at home, whatever your thing is, you need to know that as, as cute, lovely, and as beautiful as those little pets are, you're different in value. There's something intrinsically important and unique about what it means to be a human. It means that Human beings have a God-imprinted value on them, that they have an ability, a morality, a, a decision-making, 
capacity that makes them unique from the rest of the created order. And in that respect, it means that human beings, when they do what they do in the way that they do it, are more like God in the world than anything else in creation. Now that makes a lot of sense both positively and negatively. Positively, it means that when, when you do things that are just, they fit with who you are, they fit your personality, you use your gifts and your skills, and at the same time when you're doing it, like, like Eric Little who said, God made me fast and when I run I feel his pleasure. Like when, when you do the things that you do in business and it's successful, when you teach children and they understand, when you do mental math and just wow everybody around you, when, when you're able to put words together, when you're able to use a, a musical instrument and make it sound unbelievably beautiful. And in that moment, you feel this overpowering sense of joy and delight. You need to know you were made for that. When you take a house that's completely cluttered and you make it in order and you sit back and see how you've brought order that happened from chaos, you were made for that. And when you do that, you image God in a beautiful way. And so here's one of the things you need to know. In order to be a good steward, you have to do more of that. You have to figure out what you're good at. What has God gifted you in? What, is your, what are you passionate about? What are the ways in which you sense and feel his favor? And you need to do that with all of your might for the sake of God and his glory. On the other hand, you can also take a clean house. You can take a business. You can take musical ability. You can take putting words together. You can take speaking in public. You can take doing mental math. And you can use those things instead of maximizing them, you can idolize them. Instead of using them as a telescope to look at God and see his beauty, you begin to use them as a mirror because of what they say about you. So this image thing is both beautiful and potentially dangerous. It means that on the one hand, you, you, you shouldn't be the kind of person who um, minimizes your gifts or is a bad steward of them. On the other hand, you shouldn't be the kind of person who does something in order to make a name for yourself. On the one level, you could do something and not realize, look, I need to do this even better because I'm made for this. Or at another level, you could realize, look, when I do this, I need to be careful because this can become about me. To be a good steward means that you develop your gifts while not being addicted to them. You realize, don't you, that God may have put you in a new role but it's only because of three or four conversations that happen and you could trace them back and God providentially arranged that. So before you close your office door and think, ah, I nailed it, you better realize God was the one who orchestrated all these events and I've seen it before that a person says, I nailed it and God nails that person. Be a good steward, but don't become an idolater. Third, stewardship requires action. Verse 26 also tells us that there's this command that God gives. He says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. Dominion, that word means rule. And what it means is they are to exercise authority over the created order. They're to take what God has given them and the idea is there to make it even more useful. The, the idea is a, a, a path, and then you tread down the path so that it's clear where others should walk. 
So the, the idea is that, that human beings are representing God in the world by doing what he does in his world and we do it in ours. And in our limited way, we image him by how we create and how we manage and how we live in the created world. Verse 28 says that they are to be fruitful and multiply. They're to fill the earth. They're to subdue it. These words all express what it means to have dominion. If you were to go over to Genesis 2 and 15, you'd see that God gives Adam and Eve a command. He puts them in the garden, and he tells them that they are to work the garden and to keep the garden. And then very quickly, he tells Adam that he's to name the animals. In fact, go over to Genesis 2. I love what, what this says. Verse 19 says, Out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heaven, and he brought them to the man, notice this, to see what he would call them. I love that. So God creates all these animals, and he puts a man, and he goes, name the animals, and it's like the Trinity steps back and goes, watch this, he's gonna name these things. Just to see, the joy, what, what's he gonna name them? In the same way that parents, you take joy in watching your children play, and see how they, they make their little things out of their Legos, and bake a little cake, or do the thing that they do. Adam sees this striped thing, he goes, zebra. Father and son, zebra, it's a zebra, it's, a, it's good, man. Aardvark, aardvark, yeah, that's good, yeah, that's good. You know, and then, fly, oh, that's creative, fly, right, so there, right? So God is watching what Adam does and seeing how he uses the gifts. And what you need to know is that stewardship requires actions like this. And that means that when you do what you do and what you're good at, there's the pleasure of God that watches and sees and beholds the beauty of what it is that he's entrusted to you. You go on in the book of Genesis, it isn't long until we see that the first two careers are related to the resources that have been given. They've been told to keep the garden and name the animals, so is it any surprise that Abel is the keeper of sheep, and Cain is a farmer. And so here we have their, their first children are using the resources that God has provided. And then you go on to Genesis chapter four and you'll find that Adam and Eve's descendants are making instruments and they're learning how to forge metal. And go on to chapter 11, when it goes wrong, significantly wrong, the descendants of Adam and Eve gather together to build and they want to build a tower and they say we will build a tower so that we will make a name for ourselves. Again, the malfunctioning of what it means to use our gifts. The Protestant theologians in the Protestant Reformation called this the cultural mandate. It means that we take what God has given to us and we use it to image and glorify him. And this was revolutionary in church history because prior to the Protestant Reformation, there was this idea that if you really wanted to serve God, you had to become a priest or a monk. And everybody else was just doing normal, everyday, kind of menial tasks that really were not all that significant. And Martin Luther steps into this and says, no, 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 if you're using your gifts and you're a cobbler or you're a, or you're a, a milkmaid or you're a peasant, the way in which you use your gifts is just as glorifying to God and honoring to him as if any person who's serving in some sort of clerical role. So what that means is being a steward and taking real actions means that when you're 
setting a house in order, when you're taking care of your children, when you're teaching people and helping to instruct them, when you're forming a, a business plan, you're flying an airplane and people are getting there safely on time, when you're cutting open a human body and putting bones back together again, when you're figuring out actuarial tables so that other people in the world don't have to, thank you for doing that, then you, you are serving the world and serving the community and when you do that for God and for his glory, you are making much of what it means to be an image bearer. You are worshiping. Some of you are gonna to go to work tomorrow and you're gonna walk in hopefully with a very different mindset that the Apostle Paul put it this way, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men because you are serving the Lord Christ. So realize that you're being sent out into the world and the way in which you use your gifts is not only a stewardship issue, but it's also a gospel issue. So friends, this is why it's wrong to be both lazy and why it's wrong to be a perfectionist. The lazy person is a bad steward because he or she fails to make good use of what God has given them. But the perfectionist is a bad steward because he or she makes what God has given them a mirror of self-affirmation. The lazy person lives out their love for self and the pleasure of doing something other than what they should be doing, and so they enjoy the escape of video games, incessant washing of TV, the satisfaction of gluttony, or spending hours at the mall when you should be doing something else. But the perfectionist overplans, overthinks, overworks because he or she must have success. Listen, one of the reasons that God established boundaries in life is to remind us that we're not ultimate. He established boundaries in the garden. He establishes a boundary every single day in your life. You know what it is? It's called sleep. A third of your life you're gonna spend on your back, mouth open, drool pouring out from your mouth in a very inglorious position. And I've often thought how the angels must look at human beings and go, look at all they do, and look at them. A third of their life, they're laying in bed. Why does God set that up that way? In order to remind the closest image of himself on earth that they are not him. Because God never sleeps. Biblical stewardship means that we work, but we work for the right reason. It means that whether you have a really important job or a behind-the-scenes job, you steward it well. I mean, don't, don't think that when I have a lot of money, then I'm going to be a really good steward. When I have a little bit of money, that's really not that important. Trust me, that doesn't work. When I become an adult, then I'm going to be a good steward. But now that I'm a teenager, I don't need to worry about that doesn't work. When I get in retirement, that's when I'm really going to think about stewardship. It doesn't happen. Being all in means that you're living with a biblical understanding of who God is, what your life is all about, and why you work. That stewardship involves real action. Finally, stewardship involves the practical use of God's gifts. It's not just actions, but it means that we're taking actions with everything that God has given us. In chapter one and verse 28, mankind is to exercise dominion over every living creature. In chapter one and verse 29, Adam and Eve are given every plant and every tree. 
God places Adam in a garden. It's sort of like this, this royal garden, the garden of a king, and he places Adam and eventually Eve in there and calls him to work it and to keep it. But it's God's garden. It belongs to him. In chapter two and verse 19, every animal is brought to Adam to see what he would call them. In other words, while Adam gives the animals names, the animal belongs to God. While Adam has authority, he calls the animals the names, and that's what name that they're given, the reality is, is both the garden in which he lives, the very life within him, the whole created order, is all part of God's beautiful, benevolent gift. And so what we find is that this is the first way that human beings honored God and obeyed God, that the garden was worked and it was kept, that the animals were given names, and that there were gifts. And those gifts were real trees, real plants, real dirt, real fruit. You, your job is a gift. Your ability to do that job is a gift. Your house is a gift. Your apartment is a gift. Listen, your station in life is a gift. You may not like the gift. You may not want to be in the station that you're in. You may be like, I'm single and I want to be married. You may be widowed and you wish you, you weren't. You, you may be in a, maybe you don't like the state of Indiana or the city of Indianapolis or the kind of job that you've got or the work team that you're involved in. And what you need to do is to change your mindset instead of seeing this as this is something I have to bear. Instead, God's given you an amazing, wonderful gift. And the question is, what are you going to do with the real things that he's entrusted to your care? You have real money. You have real assets. Some of you have a real business. And the question is, look, you're providing employment for other people. And the question is, why has God given that to you? And what is the purpose that he is intending with all of that? This is why I chose the subtitle, Making Our Passion Practical, because stewardship is the principled connection between biblical truth and how we live practically. Because if you believe that God is the creator, if you believe that he's the owner of everything, then that has to affect, it has to affect what you do with your time, your money, your career, your gifts, and your calling. If you believe that you're an image bearer, then that has to change some things about habits, how you care for your body, the development of your mind, and how heartily you work. Some of you are making a huge disconnect between what you do at work and what it means to follow Jesus. Those things are brought together. You make a disconnect between what you do with your money and what it means to follow Jesus. You're going to see those things absolutely go together. Now next week we're going to explore the subject of generosity, but let me just ask you to think of a few questions. First, I've identified for you that God is your creator. Here's my question. Where are you at in terms of your relationship with your creator? You may be here today and not yet a follower of Jesus, not yet a Christian, and the fact of the matter is, is this question regarding the creator is a really important one for you to think through because if God is your creator and if God establishes right and wrong and if you've done what's wrong, then that's gotta be fixed. Or I've said it this way before, God is holy, we're not, and that's a problem. And the Bible tells us how to solve that problem through a relationship with Jesus. We'd love to help you understand what that means. What does it mean to have your sins forgiven? If you are a follower of Jesus, then let me ask you, are there areas of your life that need to be figuratively slid into the all-in category? What are the things over which you tend to say, this is mine? 
Some of you are working so hard, and the truth is you're working hard, not because your job needs to work that hard, it's that you love working that hard because of what your job gives you. It's convenient just to work and work and work and work and work because you love the affirmation, you love the praise, you love the the buzz that you get from people thinking like you're good, you're important, you're wonderful, and so you keep working because it's almost like a drug and you just work and work and work and work and work thinking that you're providing for your family and you may be at one level, but then other thing is you are providing for an idol. Some of you are so filled with anxiety because things that you want to grab a hold of keep slipping away. And so you're filled with worry and fear. Or some of you had something that you've lost recently and it created so much negative emotion and energy. Tim Keller says when we lose one thing, it creates sadness. When we lose the ultimate thing, it creates despair. Is there a particular area of your life that needs some attention or some help when it comes to stewardship? Percentage-wise, the number of people hearing these sermons, there has to be a fairly good number of people who are way over their heads in debt. So when you hear stewardship, immediately you feel like, oh, man. And I just want you to know, we've got some people who'd love to help you to try and find a new path forward, but it's gonna take you kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, you know what, enough. We've not done well. want to cross the line and say, hey, I need some some help. I need someone to help walk me through this. And you know that this church is a place full of grace and mercy. And again, it's not because of something we want from you, but again, something we want for you to know what it means to be free and what it means that you can actually fulfill what we're going to talk about next week and having a generous heart. Some of you don't know what it's like to be generous because right now you are a slave, a slave to the lender. And then finally, have you considered why God has gifted, the way that, gifted you in the way that he has? Do you consider why God's placed you in the role that you're in? Do you see these things as a gift that he has given? And can you think about them in terms of what it means to be a steward of those gifts? Because God has given them to you. They don't belong to you. And as a result, we need to put away an owner mindset and to decide This belongs to the Lord, and on this thing, I'm going to stop saying mine. I'm going to step into the circle and say, God, all my money, all my possessions, all my time, everything I am, all it all belongs to you, because I'm all in. Because you are all in as my creator, and you are all in as my redeemer. Let's pray together. God, help us to know how to apply what it is that you're saying right now. I imagine you have your finger on some things. I pray that you would help us to see the freedom that is offered to us and the fact that where repentance and confession happens, there's mercy and grace available. So would you come right now and As we sing, seal in our hearts what it means that from you all blessings flow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.